Good morning to uh, all my brothers and sisters here and at home. Uh, today we will continue in our summer series in the Psalms with Psalm 8. A Psalm of David in ESV titled, How Majestic Is Your Name? But before I say anything else, let me pray. Heavenly Father, by, this, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you open our eyes to the beauty of Christ and that you open our ears to the wisdom in his words. May we drink from the living waters and may we be filled with the bread from heaven. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 8, let us read. To the choir master, according to the Gethit, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of God. Christ now Psalm 8 is a song of praise written by David, a man after God's own heart. David's praise is focused on the kingship and sovereignty of God, and more specifically, as we will see, the kingship and the sovereignty of God in Christ. In this sermon, I would like to touch on seven points, being God's name, God's glory, God's power, God's work of creation, Adam's disobedience, Christ's obedience, and finally, God's work of redemption. Psalm 8 starts with David addressing God as, O Lord, our Lord. Psalm 8 is bookended by the verse, How majestic is your name in all the earth. We see this in the very first verse and the very last verse of this psalm. So let us start by meditating on verse 1, asking ourselves the question, what is God's name, and how do we know about God's name? David addressed God in verse 1 as Yahweh Adonai, translated here as Lord, capitalized for Yahweh, and our Lord, lowercase, for Adonai. The first time we see God's name, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, is in the book of Genesis, Genesis 2, verse 4, where we read that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, made the earth and the heavens. Earlier in Genesis 1, 1, we simply read that the Lord Elohim 
made the heavens and the earth. In Genesis 2.4, God shares his personal name with us for the very first time. Our God is a relational and personal God who pursues and forges a relationship with his beloved people. Our God, even though transcendent and far off, is imminent and with us. During his encounter with God in the burning bush, Moses asked God his name and God answered him. Let us read this account in Exodus 3, verses 13 through 15. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, Eya, Asher, Eya, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, Eya, I am, has sent me to you. Then God said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So, God told Moses to tell his people that Eya has sent him. Then God tells Moses that his name is Yahweh. Eya can be translated with I am, or I will be, or even I exist. In ESV translated with I am, we need to know that I am, Eya, is a first-person conjugation of the Hebrew verb haya, which means, uh, which is pretty much a primitive root for the verb to be, to exist, or to become. The name Yahweh is generally considered by most Hebrew language scholars to be one compound word made up of three different third-person conjugations of the verb haya, meaning he was, he is, and he will be. Three words in one. How fitting of a name for our triune God. God told Moses that he was, he is, and he will be. The will be should remind us of God's covenant promise to his people in Exodus 29, when God promises, I will, bring, I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. In Revelation 4 and 5, John writes and tells us about the worship of God in heaven. In Revelation 4, 8, we read, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. In Psalm 90, verse 2, we hear Moses address God in prayer as he says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In Isaiah 44, 6, God teaches us about himself when he says, Thus says the Lord, 
the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. In summary, God reveals his name to us in the Bible, the word of God. God's name, Yahweh, teaches us that God is eternal. God is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. God is the cause of all things, and he is the only one. God was, God is, and God will be forever. Now, all these references to God's name in the Old Testament should kind of teach us and make us understand what Jesus teaches about himself in the New Testament. In the Gospel of John, John 8, verse 58, right after Jesus taught his disciples that Abraham rejoiced when he would see Jesus' day, Jesus explains, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Yes, you heard it right. Before Abraham was, past tense, Jesus says, I am. Jesus here not only claimed to have lived before Abraham, who lived about 1900 to 2000 years before Christ, but more so, Jesus claimed to be the great I am, God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. In the introduction to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, one of my favorites, Jesus' final revelation to his church as his people, John quotes Jesus in Revelation 1.8 as saying, these are Jesus' words, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. In Revelation 1, verse 17 and 18, when Jesus reassures a frightened John, Jesus himself says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Finally, when Jesus receives the vision of a new heaven and a new earth in Revelation 21, Jesus tells John in Revelation 21, 6, it is finished. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Again, Jesus claimed to be God Almighty. Jesus professed to be our eternal God, the great I Am, who was, who is, and who will be the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, God Almighty. So when we, see Dave, when we see David praising God over here in Psalm 8, he is praising God for God in Christ. Christ on whom God bestowed the name that is above every name, as Ron just said. Now let us look at the second part of verse 1. So think about this. We are 10, ten minutes down the sermon, and we only dealt with the first part of verse 1. Don't worry. Um, Let's look at that second part of verse 1 of Psalm 8, where David says, You have set your glory above the, <clears throat> above the heavens. God teaches us here that he is seated on his throne above the heavens. 
In Psalm 113, another psalm of praise, we read that the Lord our God is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Furthermore, we read that the Lord our Lord is seated on high and looks far down on the heavens and the earth. God teaches us that even though imminent and nearby, he is transcendent and holy, existing apart from creation even above the heavens. As there was more to be said about God's name, there is more to be said about God's glory. The Apostle Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 4-6 that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In his letter to Titus in Crete, Paul encourages Titus in Titus 2 to diligently teach sound doctrine while, and now I quote, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 1.3 teaches that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then finally, Peter, in his conclusion to his first letter, 1 Peter 5.10, encourages his audience by saying, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter teaches us here that Christ is the eternal glory of God. In summary, the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ, the Son of Righteousness, and spelled, Son is spelled over here as S-U-N, as prophesied by the prophet Malachi in 4.2, that Jesus Christ, the Son of Righteousness, is himself the glory of God. God the Father truly did set his glory above the heavens when Jesus rose up and ascended on the clouds of heaven and was seated at the right hand of God the Father. When the high priest asked Jesus in Mark 14 if he was the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, Jesus prophesied his ascension and exaltation as he answered, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The Apostle Peter testifies in Acts 2, verse 32 to 36, that God raised up Jesus, being exalted at the right hand of God the Father, thereby echoing David's words in Psalm 110, when he said about God the Father and Jesus, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. God the Father highly exalted Jesus Christ after he had humbled himself with his death on the cross. In this psalm, Psalm 8, David is praising God for his glory in Christ. Now, going to verse 2, We read that God establishes strength out of the mouth of babies and infants to still the enemy and the avenger. 
In 1 Corinthians 1.27, we read that God chose us what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Following Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and after Jesus angrily overthrew the tables of the money changers in the table, in the temple, we read in Matthew 21 that the chief priests and the scribes were angry when they heard the children crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, as Jesus was healing the blind and the lame. While the children were praising Jesus, the elders were looking down on him with contempt. In response to the indignation of the chief priests and tribes, Jesus quoted Psalm 82 here in Mark, uh, Matthew 21, as he said, Have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared, you have prepared praise? God chose children to teach the elders, just as Jesus himself, at the age of 12, had taught the teachers in the temple of Jerusalem, his father's house. God had opened the eyes of the children while he had closed the eyes of the learned priests and scribes. Jesus explains in Matthew 11:25 that God the Father was hiding things from the wise and understanding, yet he revealed them to little children. To such belong the kingdom of God. <clears throat> The Bible teaches that God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and what is weak to shame the strong. God chose the Jews, a tiny, weak, and insignificant people, to shame the Egyptians, the world power of the time. God chose David, a tiny little shepherd boy, to kill the giant Goliath. And more so, God chose Jesus, a humble and lonely man attested to us by God and delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God to defeat death and to bring down Satan. We are to remember here that Jesus, being perceived as foolish and weak, defeated the evil powers of this world by his death and his resurrection. By dying on the cross, Jesus bound Satan the strong man, and in his resurrection, Jesus defeated death. By his death on the cross, we, the weak, strong in Christ, have been granted everlasting life. In Jesus' words in John 11, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The power of God is made perfect in weakness. David praised God in this psalm for his power and strength in Christ. Continuing in verse 3, David says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, what is man that you are mindful of him? Of whom is David talking when he says, Your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place? The Bible clearly teaches that God created the heavens and the earth. We saw that in Genesis 1.1 and again in Genesis 2.4. Now, expanding on the work of creation, the Apostle John, when talking about Jesus, he teaches in John 1.3 that 
that all things were made through him and that without him was not anything made that was made. Likewise, the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1:15 to 16, he teaches that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and that all things were created through him and for him. The writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 1-2 says that God created the world through his son whom he <coughs> appointed heir of all things. And finally, in Hebrews 1.10, we hear God the Father saying of Jesus, You Lord, this is God the Father addressing Jesus, You Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. The heavens are the work of Jesus, his fingers. The New Testament writers testified that God created the heavens and the earth through Jesus Christ. The New Testament writers support Jesus' claim that he is God, the creator of heaven and earth. So David here in Psalm 8 is praising God for Christ's work of creation. Moving our focus to verse 4, we read, What is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you even care for him? Man is here a translation of the Hebrew word enosh, or enosh, meaning mortal or human being. Son of man is a translation of ben adam, literally meaning the son of Adam. David, while admiring the sun, or correction, the moon and the stars and the night skies around him, wonders why God would even bother about mankind. Similarly, in Psalm 144, David says, O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Or in Job 7, Job is asking God, what is man that you make so much of him, and that you have set your heart on him? And then in Job 25, when like David, Job compares man to the moon and the stars, Job refers to man as a maggot, and the son of man as a worm. So what was and what is God's purpose for man and his interest in mankind? Well, that question is answered in verses 5 through 8 of this psalm. So let us again read this passage, starting in verse 4. What is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. God created mankind with a mandate to oversee and take care of God's creation. God created Adam in his likeness and put him in charge. Man was made lower than God and the angels, and man was crowned with glory and honor. Man was given dominion over all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. All things were put under man's feet. All that God had created was for man and to be subjected to man. 
Let us go back to Genesis 1 and read what God says about the creation of man. This is Genesis 1, verses 26 through 30. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So in Genesis 1, God commanded Adam and his offspring to be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over every living thing. In other words, God commanded man to keep God's garden and take care of God's animals. This is where we move to Adam's disobedience. So how did Adam do? How are we as offspring of Adam and Eve, how are we doing today? We know the outcome of that story. We witness it in the here and now. Adam disobeyed God. We disobey God. Adam and his offspring did not keep God's garden and did not exercise dominion over the animals. With that result that the garden has overgrown with thorns and thistles and that the animals are eating one another rather than the green plants given to them by God for food. Men ended up killing men rather than multiplying. Men settled trying to make a name for himself rather than going out into the world and proclaiming God's name. Men ended up looking to be served rather than to serve. As a consequence of Adam's, as mankind's disobedience, decay and death has spread over all of God's creation, affecting humans, livestock, the creeping things, the beasts of the earth, the sea creatures, the winged birds of the sky, vegetation, trees, plants, flowers, you name it. Everything and all. The whole creation has been growing as a result of man's disobedience. Fortunately, this is the good news. That's up. This is not the end of the story. And that is the exact focus of David's praise in Psalm 8. David's focus is on Christ's obedience. The writer of the book of Hebrews, comparing Jesus to the angels in Hebrews 2, quotes Psalm 8 as he witnesses that God made his one and only son, namely Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the true Adam, 
for a little while lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything under his feet. So the writer of Hebrews 2 quotes Psalm 8, referring to Christ. Let me uh, read Hebrews 2, verse 5 to 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and this is where the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8. It has been testified that somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he lifts nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8 when he is talking about Jesus. It now becomes clear that David in Psalm 8 was not praising God for humanity, the sons of Adam, the first Adam, but was rather praising God for Christ, Son of Man and Son of God, the last Adam, and with him humanity in Christ, the church, the body of Christ, those whom the Father had given to the Son. The writer of Hebrews explains that Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that he might taste death for everyone. Even though we're sinners, we deserve death. Jesus tasted death for us. With his death on the cross, Jesus gained everlasting life for all those who believe. As it comes to those who believe, the Apostle Paul teaches in Romans 8 that those whom God the Father foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense. With Christ, we have been glorified. Paul teaches here that through Christ and with Christ, also humanity in Christ was crowned with glory and honor. Unlike the first Adam, Jesus, the last Adam, came not to be served, but came to serve. He came to give as a ransom, to give his life as a ransom for many. God had sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. As we read before in one of our songs, Isaiah, Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. With his wounds, we were healed. We have been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. For as by Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by Jesus' his obedience, the many will be made righteous. About the reward for Christ's obedience, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, coming those who belong to Christ. Here we read that not only Christ was resurrected from the death as a reward for his obedience, but also those in Christ are promised a resurrection from the dead as a reward for his obedience, not our obedience. <clears throat> After giving his disciples a great commission, uh, we read in Mark 16 that Jesus was taken up to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father, a position of supreme authority. Paul teaches furthermore in 1 Corinthians 15 that God had put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and that he must reign to the end until he has put all enemies under his feet. And, and again in Hebrews 10 we read that after Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, reigning from heaven, King of kings, Lord of lords, waiting for that time until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. About the specifics of that time, Jesus teaches in Matthew 24 that the end will come only after the gospel of the kingdom has been proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. The end will only come after the very last lost sheep will have been found. In Psalm 8, David is praising God for his Son, Son of God and Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the shepherd of the sheep, the last Adam who came to find, remake, and renew what the first Adam had lost and destroyed. Jesus single-handedly reversed the curse that had come upon all of creation as a consequence of Adam's disobedience. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a life, a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Finally, as it comes to God's work of redemption, we see God's covenant promise to us repeated and fulfilled when we read in Revelation 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Christ is making all things things new. So in this psalm, Psalm 8, David is praising God for Christ's work of redemption. In closing, let us join David in his praise in Psalm 8 and praise our God in heaven for Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, who was, who is, and will be forevermore. May God help us to proclaim God's message of good news throughout the whole world as a testimony to all peoples and nations and languages and kings 
so that we all can say when he comes again with one voice, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We praise you for your glory, your power, and your strength in Jesus. We praise you for Christ's work of creation and his marvelous work of redemption. We praise you for Christ's example of unconditional and impartial love and unwavering obedience. Father, please forgive us our disobedience. We pray that you may continue to transform us into the likeness, into your likeness in Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that we may show Christ in our words and actions to those who don't know him. And I praise this in Jesus' name. Amen.